This is Unsung History, the podcast where we discuss people and events in American history that haven't always received a lot of attention. I'm your host, Kelly Therese Pollack. I'll start each episode with a brief introduction to the topic and then talk to someone who knows a lot more than I do. Be sure to subscribe to Unsung History on your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. And please, Tell your friends, family, neighbors, colleagues, maybe even strangers to listen to. On this episode, we're looking at the life and career of Anna May Wong. Wong Liu Tsong was born on January 3rd, 1905, in Los Angeles, near Chinatown. Wong's father, Wang Samsing, owned a Chinese laundry, and he moved his growing family to a neighborhood further from Chinatown when Liu Tsang was still young in order to run the laundry there. Liu Tsang and her older sister started at public school, but they were harassed by anti-Chinese racial taunts, so they moved to a Presbyterian Chinese school in Chinatown where they learned Cantonese in addition to English. At the same time that Liu Tsang was becoming fascinated with motion pictures, the movie industry was looking to Chinatown to provide interesting backdrops for its stories. Liu Tsang Wang spent her limited free time at the movies or hanging around film sets, becoming known by the filmmakers as CCC. Curious Chinese Child. At 14, she was an extra in The Red Lantern, an uncredited part, but one that thrilled her nonetheless. Adopting the name Anna May Wong, she dropped out of high school to pursue an acting career. At 17, she starred in The Toll of the Sea, a silent film version of the Madame Butterfly story set in China. Despite glowing reviews, Wong had trouble finding parts at a time when Hollywood preferred to cast white actors in yellow face paint instead of Asian actors for the leading Asian roles. Asian Americans, like Wong, were relegated to bit parts and stereotyped roles. In 1924, Wong was cast in a Douglas Fairbanks film, The Thief of Baghdad, where she played a deceitful Mongol slave. Wong tried to start her own production company, Anime Wong Productions, in an attempt to film less racist stories, but a dishonest business partner sunk the endeavor. Frustrated by Hollywood's racism, Wong accepted a role in Berlin in 1928. She left for Europe, where she found more success, starring, among other films, in Piccadilly in 1929. While Wong was in Europe, she filmed her first talkie, The Flame of Love, in 1930, where she played the lead. She also starred on stage opposite a young Laurence Olivier. With studio promises of better roles, Wong returned to Hollywood, starring in Daughter of the Dragon 
1931, and Shanghai Express with her friend Marlene Dietrich in 1932. But Hollywood racism still limited her career options and continued to frustrate her. When she was passed up for the lead role in The Good Earth, a role that instead went to a German actress in Yellowface, Wong left Hollywood in disgust to travel to China in 1936. In China, Wong was feted, and she won over the Chinese media, which had been disdainful of her stereotypical portrayals in Hollywood. In China, Wong directed and produced a documentary of her trip, which she called My China Film, that includes scenes with her father in their ancestral village and of her fittings for traditional Chinese clothing. Two decades later, Wong's film, with her added narration, was turned into an episode of Bold Journey on ABC television. When she returned to Hollywood, Wong was finally able to play more nuanced roles, saying of Paramount's 1937 Daughter of Shanghai, where she played opposite her friend, Korean-American Philip Ahn, quote, I like my part in this picture better than any I've had before, not because it gives me better acting opportunities, nor because the character has exceptional appeal. It's just because the picture gives the Chinese a break. We have the sympathetic parts for a change. To me, that means a great deal. Unquote. During World War II, Wong raised money for Chinese relief, auctioning off costumes and hosting charity events and fundraisers. She also starred in propaganda films, Bombs Over Burma and The Lady from Chungking that depicted Chinese guerrilla fighters battling with Japanese forces. Although her career waned some after World War II, Wong continued to perform, including on television, where she played an art gallery owner who solved crimes in the one season of The Gallery of Madame Lutsong in 1951. It was the first U.S. television series to star an Asian-American woman in the lead role. Liu Tsong, of course, was Wong's Chinese name. Sadly, when the Dumont Television Network folded, they trashed most of their film stock, including The Gallery of Madame Liu Tsong, which is said to be on the bottom of the Hudson River. By this time, Wong was also a landlady, after she bought a Spanish-style house in Santa Monica, and divided it into four apartments, calling the property Moongate Apartments. She rented out three of the units while living in the fourth. In 1960, Wong was the first Asian-American actress to be awarded a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. It wasn't until 2019 that the second Asian-American actress was awarded a star on the Walk of Fame. That actress was Lucy Liu, who said in her ceremony for her star, quote, I was lucky that trailblazers like Anna Mae Wong and Bruce Lee came before me. If my body of work somehow helped bridge the gap 
between stereotypical roles, first given to Anna May, and mainstream success today. I'm thrilled to have been part of that process. Unquote. In 1961, Wong was set to make a comeback. Cast as Madame Liang in Rogers and Hammerstein's Flower Drum Song. Sadly, health problems kept her from taking the role. On February 3rd, 1961, Wong died of a heart attack in her Santa Monica home at the age of only 56. Reportedly, a copy of the Flower Drum Song film script was next to her when she died. In 2022, the United States Mint began issuing Anime Wong Quarters as part of its American Women Quarter series, making Wong the first Asian American to appear on U.S. currency. In 2023, Mattel introduced an Anime Wong doll into its Barbie's Inspiring Women series the first Asian-American figure in the series. Joining me now is Dr. Yunta Huang, professor of English at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and author of Daughter of the Dragon, Anime Wong's Rendezvous with American History. First, though, here is a clip of Anime Wong singing in Cantonese on the Rudy Valley Radio Show in July 1935. understand Chinese. The last number I did was a Chinese folk song entitled a Jasmine Flower. Hi, Yunta. Thanks so much for joining me today. Well, thank you for having me, Kelly. Yes, I am so excited to learn about Anime Wong. I want to start by asking you a little bit about how you came to write this book. I know this is the, the third in what you're calling a, a trilogy, so I wanted to understand a little bit about the trilogy and, and why you're writing this book. Right. So, as you said uh, uh, correctly, that uh, this biography on Anime Wong is really the third installment of what I want to call Rendezvous with America. You know, I'm uh, 
uh, mystery buff. So the rendezvous at midnight, sort of. but it's more kind of Asian American, Asian Americans uh, meeting American history in some ways. And so overall, my goal is to tell the Asian American story and uh, share the Asian American experience uh, in the making of American history. But of course, I didn't plan it that way, you know, many years ago. And all it's really all thanks to my first book of the trilogy uh, on Charlie Chan. And in that book, as you know, Charlie Chan was a very controversial um, film character, but it turns out that's actually a real, you know, Cantonese club in Honolulu who inspired the, the character. So I did that book. And because of, you know, it's about uh, Asian American image and uh, pop in popular culture and everything. Anime Wang inevitably will come up uh, in that in that digging of Asian American history. And so I wrote about, I would say, a page or two about Anime Wang just as an example, since, you know, Warner Olin, for instance, who figures quite prominently in my current book on Anime Wang, was a good friend of Anime Wang. They pair up in a number of films, uh, in silent films and later on, especially in this uh, uh Fu Manchu series, uh, as well as the Charlie Chan series. So they partnered uh, in a number of films, including Shanghai Express with Malena Dietrich. So anyway, so I had to write a few pages on Anime Wang. And uh, so the second of the you know trilogy was uh, Siamese Twins. Once again, because of the Charlie Chan book, uh, I had to dig, you know, go back to 19th century, the Asian American experience and uh, Chang, Chang and Bunker, you know, Siamese twins really represented the, the earlier experience, whereas uh, Charlie Chang represents more kind of 20th century controversy. And uh, so after these two books, uh, it's almost like natural in some ways, uh, you know, how things come together. So I'm quite happy about that and how, you know, the three pieces now finally are together. So I, I do want to ask a little bit about your your method and the the kinds of sources you looked at. I get the impression that you watched a lot of the films, which seems like a fun part. Of oh the, yeah, <laughs> of doing the work. And you talk about how Anna Mae Wong herself was a writer and and wrote a lot. Uh, so can you talk some about the the things you were able to access while you were putting together this book? Well, speaking of watching films, and of course I had to watch all of Anna Mae Wong, you know, Anna Mae Wong films. But I should uh, should tell you, for instance, thanks to Netflix and all that and all the YouTube and, uh, you know. So when I actually was doing, for instance, I'll give you one example. I wasn't born in this country and I grew up in China. I went to college there and then came to the United States for graduate school and then got stuck. And <laughs> happily in some ways. So I wasn't... Uh, too familiar with American popular culture to, to begin with, although I studied American literature. So, for instance, when I was uh, researching uh, for the uh, Siamese Twins book, it turns out, you know, Chan and Bunker the conjo- with conjoined bodies, after they made a lot of money, they eventually settled down. Uh, I'm sorry, it sounds like a digression, but I, I will come back to it. <laughs> My students often complain that I, I ramble, but everything actually is you know, interconnected. That you, you asked me about method, and that is really my method of research. How, you know, it's like a detective, right? You, you follow every clue and every hint, every, you know, smell. Let's just say. So anyway, so China and Bank, the Siamese Chains made a lot of money eventually, and they are sick and tired of the public eye. And uh, so they settled, uh, retired from 
the business of showing their own bodies as in freak shows and all that. And they chose a spot in a very remote area, as you may know, Chikali, uh, in you know the corner of Western North Carolina. And they said married two white sisters and they had 21 children, right? Amazing story. But it turns out that's how strange American stories often are, is that, uh, you know, Mount Airy, North Carolina, was there where eventually settled and have, you know, uh, have kids, raising kids and uh, living on a, two farms. But it turns out it's also the birthplace of Andy Griffith. And that was the basis of, uh, you know, Mayberry, uh, the Andy Griffith show. Not having grown up in this country, as you know, I've never seen any Andy Griffith show except occasionally, you know, the reruns on TV. So because I was doing research, of course, I had to watch like 249 episodes of all of them. Speaking of binge watching, because I didn't really want to miss any possible connection, right? As a writer, I'm pretty thorough as a, you know, as a cultural historian, uh, I, I'm pretty thorough digging, you know, any connection, any clue and so, yeah, 249. So compared to that, six or so anime, 60 or so Animal One films was a piece of cake. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about the Southern California that Anime Wong was born into. So she is born in early 1905. And, uh, you know, the it, it's a quite a racist country, especially in California, especially toward Chinese Americans at this time. Can you talk a little bit about that, that culture she's born into and, and how that affects her life? Right. I mean, today when people look at California as the, you know, as the bluest state <laughs> in the union, wow, you can't imagine even, you know, late 19th century, early 20th century, as you say, you know, turn of the century, California or Southern California, wasn't really a great place for Asians by, by any means. Uh, I mean, I can give you a few examples. Uh, you know, the, the anti-Chinese violence uh, after the gold rush, right? I described that uh, in actually all of three of my books uh, because that's very important, you know, chapter of Asian American experience. So when Anime Wang bo was born uh, in Los Angeles, uh, she was born in her father's uh, laundry, right? Uh, steam and starch. And laundry, interestingly, I'll just give you an example, what kind of sentiment, you know, overall general sentiment toward Chinese. Uh, a lot of cities in California will not allow Chinese to live, you know, outside of Chinatown. Uh, unless, for instance, give you an example, in, in San Francisco, right, at the time, Chinamen, so-called, were not allowed to live, uh, you know, uh, beyond Chinatown, with one exception, that uh, if you run a laundromat, then you can do your business and live in there as well. So they were like sort of like the vanguard, you know, pioneers <laughs> moving out of Chinatown. So when Anime One was growing up, yes, I, she actually grew up outside of Chinatown, although close enough to enable the family to go back, you know, go back to Chinatown for communal connection, grocery shopping, and you know, food and everything, language, school. She went to, so she started out going to public school and then well, it's it's not going to happen. So they, her parents send them, uh, you know, her and her sister back to Chinatown for a few years before they were strong enough as children to handle that kind of all the bullying and everything. So that wasn't very kind of uh, friendly uh, environment. Uh, and of course, California is also considered the, what is called the, the garrison state, right? Because this is where, you know, 
the continental limit of uh, of uh, European civilization will meet the other side, which is Hawaii and the Polynesians, and ultimately Asia. Uh, it's the, like the last, you know, defense line against the other side. So that that mentality uh, was deep rooted in California, Golden State, and uh, it really shows up again, especially during World War II after Pearl Harbor. The the internal Japanese Americans uh, was really a symptom of that. This is the final line, right? Uh, so Japanese Americans living on the West Coast uh, will be sent to camps. And but of course, if you back in New York or something, if you're Japanese, then you're fine. Uh, so that that really shows a lot of kind of the local culture and the history and the, the general sentiment and attitude toward Asian Americans. That attitude then spills over into Hollywood. And so despite there's a, a ton of movies being made about Asian Americans, uh, and yet anime Wong has trouble getting roles, especially starring roles. Can you talk a little bit about that tension and and what's going on there that means that she's often, especially at the beginning of her career, relegated to sort of sideline roles or evil roles? Right. Well, in some sense, she was lucky. It's, it's hard to put it that way, but it is true because when Hollywood was rising as an industry, as a place and a state of mind eventually, that um, strangely, especially the early films, the silent films, as you know, oftentimes, uh, um, the director would just put a camera, a steel camera, just, you know, static, put it there and just taking the scenes. Uh, and the Chinatown became a very kind of uh, almost ready-made uh, set for those early films. So that's something I write about a little bit. It's actually the what I call the umbilical cord that ties Hollywood to Chinatown in many ways. So not just the street scene, but also laundry, you know, how mechanical the, the labor was, robotic, and also uh, the um, the fear, the Chinese, they are so hardworking, but also they don't get tired. That kind of exaggeration, right? Racist attitude and what I call the techno-Orientalism. And that on the one hand, they are beasts, they're animals, and they're all, almost like subhuman in a sense, their capacity to, to handle pain, for instance. So some of the earlier films, if you if you do look at them, unfortunately, they are all, you know, hidden and, you know, stored away in, in vaults because uh, studios are afraid, you know, to let them out obvious for obvious reasons. They're very racist. And if you look at those early ones, um, there was a lot of violence against like Asian bodies. And uh, these are all kind of what I call the ready-made footage. And it doesn't require a lot of uh, uh, editing almost. <laughs> and so... So in that sense, Hollywood was uh, always in Chinatown in those early years. So in that sense, Anime One was lucky because she didn't have to go to Hollywood. Hollywood came to her. Uh, unlike, you know, what we call the movie girls in the early days, right? Uh, a lot of, you know, young American women were from going anywhere, small town, Midwest, Chicago, Illinois, or, you know, Ohio. They will buy one-way train ticket to uh, to come to California, step off Union Station, and hoping for something. Uh, and that's not the case. Anyone did not have to buy a train ticket for that matter. And the bus will come to uh, Chinatown to to you know to hire the extras and all that. As you know, that's how she actually started out. And her first appearance was uh, in the nineteen nineteen Red Lantern, and she was the kind of you know uncredited extra as a lantern carrier 
she actually couldn't you know recognize her own face in the crowd, but she was very proud of it. So in that environment, she rose and like I, like you said, on the one hand, there's you know fascination with Chinatown, the exoticism and uh, the shops, the curious shops, uh, the dark alleys, the smell and everything. That's one fascination. On the other hand, as you know, uh, America or Hollywood has a long history of yellow face or red face, you know, white actors playing, uh, you know, colored uh, roles. So, so uh, throughout her career, you always see this paradox. And that, that really, I'm interested in that paradox because that says a lot about America in the sense how America is sort of like uh, at war with itself. They, they like one thing, but they also hate something else, uh, the same thing. So anime one, for instance, because of her beauty, her talent and everything. So any, what they at the time called the China flick, uh, or even so yellow flicks, it means Chinese themes, uh, you know, films. It's not possible that they, they don't have anime one because she was the biggest star later on. But on the other hand, she will, she could not have the lead roles because of the, the Hollywood racism, the, the Hays Code and everything. So it's it's interesting. Uh, you want one thing, uh, on the other hand, you know, you can't have that. Yeah, can you talk about the role of the anti-miscegenation laws too, and how that affected the kind of role she was able to get? Right. So it does not just you know what I call the virtual form of foot binding, really, right? Because uh, the Hays Code or the earlier you know kind of uh, industry uh, rules would not allow. Uh, uh, interracial kissing, for instance. And uh, kiss, as you know, as some film historians say, is really the face and soul of 20th century love. You know, without romantic kissing, you know, rom-com will never happen. And because of that, it's like small technical detail that really dooms her career in, 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 to a great extent. And um, so that's that's really kind of, you know, virtual form of foot mining. But but then we can't forget we are talking about a real human being, and the anti-miscegenation law not just you know applies to to film, it applies to reality as well. So uh, interracial marriage was not recognized uh, at the time, and it wasn't until 1967, right? Uh, Loving versus Virginia eventually kind of um, regarded miscegenation laws as un- unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. And at the time of that ruling, uh, there were still 16 states in the union where anti-miscegenation law was still on the books. So if you look at her personal life, so I spent actually a lot of time trying to describe, you know, what what was it like uh, when she was, uh, I would say, um, aged, okay, in later part of her life, well, it was quite tragic, right? I think have much to do, of course, with the anti-miscegenation law. She can't marry a white man. Uh, she could have romance, but can't, you know, couldn't. Her good friend, uh, James Wang Hao, a very famous photographer who won the Oscar twice, uh, he married uh, his uh, Caucasian wife uh, in France because, you know, it was not going to happen in the United States. And they came back, uh, lived in the United States, in California. and But they, they were afraid to let their marriage, you know, become public. So that, you know, the depth of tragedy, people are drawn, of course, to spectacles. And, you know, her story is a spectacular story of, uh, of a, a, a Chinese woman, you know, rising from her father's laundry to become a global celebrity. 
and people are drawn to that kind of you know a shine and a spectacle. But I'm very interested, uh, you know, uh, in digging what's underneath, uh, you know, the depth and the, and the length of a struggle and the, and the depth of that tragedy and what it says about us and all that. So she goes to Europe then because she's having trouble with her career in the United States. And this is not uncommon. Of course, there are other entertainers and writers and artists who who did the same thing. Can you talk a little bit about that? This is, you know, sort of immediately before uh, Nazism is is rising in in Germany, and she's in Germany, and she's enjoying her time in Germany, right. and able to make movies there. Uh, what what was that like? And you know, she does a lot of like learning languages to be able to to work there. What was that part of her life like? Yes. So because of you know she was fed up with Hollywood and. Um, she will actually later on she'll run away again, you know. <laughs> uh, but her first runaway was uh, to Europe, as you pointed out, in 1928, and uh, she arrived, uh, you know, Weimar Republic, right? Uh, and it was a short-lived kind of uh, 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 golden period uh, in Germany before the rise of the Nazis, as you as you said, and that also kind of. That story, that experience, how she rose, you know, in Europe. The irony here is this: that basically she went to uh, Europe to be recognized as American, uh, because you know, in the United States, she's just Chinese. Uh, she's not really American, right? And so when she went to Europe, people recognized her as an American, American star, you know, uh, an actress from Hollywood. That's actually how she was hired because Germany was trying to compete with Hollywood. And what is the best way to go to our Hollywood, Hollywood, our American, American. And uh, strangely, they found a Chinese star, right? And of course, uh, racism against uh, Asians uh, is a different kind of, I think, you know, um, I wouldn't say different level, but it's a different kind of historical experience. Uh, You know, um, Chinatown in Germany didn't really exist. It's a very small kind of yellow quarter, so-called. And so, so she became a uh, a star in Europe, uh, using again her exoticism, and people are attracted to exoticism. So what what like what is what was she in the eye of Europeans at the time? That's a very interesting question, right? Because we know what she was uh, in America at the time. People look at her; she's just Chinese girl, right? Uh, and uh, in Europe, however. Strangely, she embodies uh, China, old, you know, Middle Kingdom, and as well as California. And so that's a kind of interesting uh, mix. And you can say it's sort of like a misrecognition, but it's a willful misrecognition from the European side. So, for instance, the people often ask me, like, what is my favorite anime one film? Right. Uh, I was anticipating that question. So, so my, I might as well answer that right now. Piccadilly, 1929. And this is really uh, the swan song of the silent era is a silent film and uh, because she was away from hollywood and uh, somewhat you know distanced from the 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 constraints of hollywood uh, i wouldn't say uh, britain allowed her to do whatever she wanted actually it's not the case at all but at least she enjoys certain kind of freedom In the same way as you mentioned you know uh, her trajectory like going to europe is no stop it's quite common to some extent. Josephine Baker, right, was a totally a compa- comparable case. So in Piccadilly, uh, she was playing, you know, the uptown, the West End, and the East End. East, you know, the Limehouse and the, the posh 
clubbing scene and everything, the contrast. So she was able in real life and also in the film, especially kind of shuttle between these two sides. And she was able to do all the dance. And uh, so I think that going to Europe really allowed her to to mature and to be recognized as a, as a real talent, a, a, a global star. So and that really helped her, you know, her second part of her career when she came back to Hollywood. So you just mentioned that that was the end of the silent era, and and she's able to make that transition then into the the talkies uh, as they start. But she had to really work at it, right? Can you talk a little bit about that that transition, which a lot of actresses and actors were not able to make, and she is able to make it, but it it, it it's not easy. Absolutely, and that once again shows how not just how talented she was, but the tenacity that she really worked hard. So she survived the transition, unlike many silent stars who fell, you know, uh, on the side. She was able to make the transition to uh, from silent film to talkie. And later on, once again, um, she was uh, able to make the transition from uh, film to television. Uh, that's a later part of her career. But back to this this transition, you know, yes. So she went, left California, went to Europe. So Piccadilly was silent film, and she was able to do, you know, all the acting uh, uh, without having to say a line, speak a line. But then she was immediately uh, hired to, uh, because her ambition was always in theater, actually, stage, kind of serious, you know, uh, high art. Uh, so she was, uh, after Piccadilly, uh, she had the lead role in the, the Circle of Chalk, was based on an old kind of Chinese play, translated into German, and then retranslated into English. And so without any theatrical, you know, kind of professional training, because of her talent in Piccadilly, uh, she was given this uh, lead role, playing Hai Tang. And imagine the, the effect. So it, it's like if you suddenly to, you know, turn on the volume on a, you know, uh, on a silent film. <laughs> so critics were shocked. On the one hand, they thought she's a, she was great, you know, uh, acting, you know, uh, the emotional crying and everything. But the minute she opened her mouth, the California twang <laughs> came out. And as you know, especially in theater, British accent is, you know, hardly sought after. You know, I learned my lesson when I first, as I say, got out of graduate school in Buffalo and went to teach at Harvard, my first teaching job. And uh, I suddenly I heard a lot of British accents. And then when I dug a little deeper, they just go to good old Americans, you know, <laughs> kind of feigning that kind of British accent, a tiny bit, a little touch. It's like food, you know, you add a little soy sauce, a pinch of salt will, will change the dynamics, right? So she re- immediately realized in order to survive the transition, she needed, you know, coaching, tutoring. So she spent a lot of money hiring a, 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 a coach from uh, Oxford. And so she w- left California with a strong California accent, kind of, you know, a Central Valley girl accent. And when she returned uh, to America in 1930, she was speaking with a kind of almost like high class uh, uh, British accent. So that's how she kind of fashioned herself. So she's a very hard worker, certainly. Yeah. And then uh, one of the movies, I think that final movie she made in Europe, she did in three different languages. Mm-hmm. 
That's amazing. Oh, absolutely. She said, <laughs> I, you know, in my book, I call her the, the star coolie, right? You know, the coolie labor. She, but she's a star coolie. It's kind of a, it's sort of, you know, it's twisted term. And yes, she picked up German and she also picked up French. And usually when they make these multilingual films, and usually they have a totally different cast for each, you know, uh, each film, language film. At the time, it was a France, you know, France, Germany, and and the uh, UK. They join forces together, trying to compete with Hollywood. And uh, you know, Netflix today, for instance, you know, they they do that, right? You know, in different the same story but told in different countries, and you know, they have a total different cast, right? But because of um, Anime One was so hardworking, and uh, and she was able to pull it off, uh, the studios really took advantage of her. I, I think it's really exploitation, of course. And it, but when she was also, you know, proud and happy to do it, that she was able to pull it off in three different languages. But of course, eventually, when it's taping is done, she really need to go to uh, some place to uh, to recover because it's so exhausting and and everything. You mentioned that this was her her first running away from Hollywood. So the second one, of course, she goes to China and she's Chinese American, uh, but had never been there before to China. So can you talk a little bit about that? That trip seems so formative then to the the rest of her life after that. Can you talk about that that trip, what she was hoping to do, and you know what she experienced while she was there? Right. So after success in Europe, she came back and uh, was it given you know some important roles, lead roles, including Daughter of Dragon, in which she actually had the lead role. And then she had was in Shanghai Express, playing second fiddle to uh, Marlena Dietrich, although she was great. Despite all that, uh, she was never able to find a lead role again for quite a number of years. But there's one role she really wanted badly, and that would have made a diff- huge difference for her career, was uh, The Good Earth based on Pearl Buck's, you know, uh, uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning novel. And that was like the biggest China movie. It's like Barbie and Oppenheimer today. Everybody was talking about it way before, you know, the movie came out. And it was a big budget uh, film. And she really wanted that the Olan role, a uh, Chinese peasant woman. But of course, it was given away to a, an Austrian actress, Louise Rayner. Although to you know Reina's credit, she actually won Oscar for it. But but that's you know Hollywood culture that yellow face was still trendy and that was still the must do thing, right? And really that really broke Anime One's heart and spirit, and she was really fed up. So she left for China because her family, her father especially, you know, had retired to China, and she and along with her other siblings. So she wanted to go see China. You know her fatherland. Um, she had represented all these years without knowingly. <laughs> so anyway, so she went there in 1936, and she initially initially she wanted to spend six months, but she ended up actually spending nine months and visiting uh, quite a number of cities. And she met her father and everything. But there's one kind of a, a purpose of her trip, going back to her again, her interest, uh, a commitment to theater. She really wanted to bring Chinese opera, you know, Peking opera in this you know, Chinese style opera to the West. And, uh, you know, I think professionals are still trying to figure out how to do it today, even because Chinese opera is so different from, say, Italian opera. But it's a kind of, you know, uh, honorable 
long, rich history. Uh, but in terms of cultural translation, it's kind of hard to do. So she was very uh, devoted to that. And she spent a lot of time in Shanghai and in Peking trying to learn from the masters. Uh, so her purpose was to bring Chinese theater to the West and uh, made, you know, present it to the world. And, but she ended up, unfortunately, buying a lot of costumes, Chinese uh, theater, co- theatrical costumes, because she realized Chinese theater is such a difficult art that especially you need to be uh, fluent in Mandarin Chinese or whatever dialect you know you speak uh, or the the opera that's because there's a diverse you know a great variety of operas like such Cantonese opera there's Peking opera there's Huang Mei Xi you know or Qin Shi you know all that and most of the operas are regional and uh, require you know a local dialect Peking opera requires Mandarin Chinese and anyway once despite the fact that she went to you know uh, Chinese school in her early years she spoke mostly uh, Cantonese Mandarin was still kind of sketchy a little bit. So without that linguistic skill, it's not possible. You know, the enunciation and everything is just not possible. So she realized that there's a limit uh, to what she could do. But she ended up buying a lot of costumes, like I said, and uh, did a lot of research, bought a lot of books. And she's a really serious student and uh, and brought everything back uh, to um, California. It's shortly after that that World War II starts, or at least the Japanese invasion of China, and then eventually what what leads to World War II. Can you talk a little bit about uh, Anna Mae Wong and what what she's doing during World War II, and and really trying to raise uh, raise awareness of what's happening in China and raise funds for China? Right. So World War II began much earlier, you know, in Asia than anywhere else. The Japanese invasion, uh, you know, uh, in 1937. And uh, actually, uh, two of her siblings were in Shanghai when Shanghai was bombed. But fortunately, you know, uh, her siblings were fine or managed to manage to get out safely. So during what in, in that period, you know, that's the other aspect of my book is that the nitty gritty details lie underneath the spectacle. For instance, um, because she was Chinese and the Japanese invasion and the outbreak of the you know full scale scale war inevitably will involve her uh, in terms of fundraising and in Chinatown, in LA, and speaking out against uh, Japanese and everything, right? So so people might think, okay, she's Asian-American, then, you know, we are all these together. But no, during World War II, of course, uh, Chinese try to distance, in, in California, try to distance themselves from Japanese, especially during, you know, the uh, internment, right? And Chinese will wear labels and your buttons say, I'm Chinese or I'm not Japanese, trying to distance themselves. So there's a kind of inner kind of um, conflict going on. So so we, we need to, you know, to be honest, uh, because of that real sentiment uh, uh, people had at the time. But like I said, uh, she's mostly involved in fundraising, uh, going to using her, you know, uh, celebrity status to raise money for, for war relief in China. But she also, very importantly, uh, made two films uh, in, in that period, Bombs Over Burma and A Lady from Chongqing. And the critics will regard this sort of like a propaganda films, you know. And Hollywood actually turned out a lot of kind of anti-Japanese films and very racist, of course. Uh, even the State Department tried to talk to Hollywood studio, you know, producers, like tone it down a little bit because 
we don't want to get into uh, this conflict with Japan right now. Because bef- before Pearl Harbor, as you may know, America was actually not willing to just you know get involved uh, in the in the, another European war. Basically, right? They learned the lesson from the first one uh, until Pearl Harbor broke out, and then it became inevitable. So, anyone was kind of recall. You earlier asked me about you know my method as a writer, and I really want to show not in a sense of kind of easy contextualization, but I really want to show how one person you know uh, story cannot really be told in a meaningful way without really looking at what's going on uh, you know, elsewhere. So even locally in, in Southern California, after Pearl Harbor, the fear, the paranoia, right? And uh, where I live right now in, in Santa Barbara, you know, many people don't know that, you know, Santa Barbara is the, the only place actually in continental USA that was actually attacked by Japanese. Right, because the Japanese submarine one day, you know, came up and then look at the the Santa Ines Mountains, and the submarine sent over uh, some shells. Okay, shelled uh, the shelling of Santa Barbara. It didn't cause any damage. They tried to destroy the the oil refinery, and uh, but it hit mostly eucalyptus trees and uh, <laughs> and the hills. But imagine the panic at the time that the Japanese actually showed up, you know, offshore here. So there was kind of dim out the period that people cannot turn on lights. So people would drive around in the dark and uh, pedestrians got killed as a result, not by Japanese shelling. So uh, Anime One was, you know, trying to do fundraising and driving around at, at night and going to, you know, all these uh, social events and everything in the context of this fear of Japanese invasion, people panicking. And then, of course, followed up by... U.S. soldiers actually being sent to, you know, to the battlefield. And so she will ended up uh, touring the camps and joining the USO, you know, campaign and everything. So she did all she could during those years. So there's a, a million more things we could talk about, of course, but I think at this point, people should just go buy your book. So can you tell people how to get a copy of your book? Oh, it's available like like they say anywhere books are sold. <laughs> the book is called uh, Yeah Daughter of the Dragon. The title is borrowed from the her vintage uh, anime one film Daughter of the Dragon. Is there anything else you wanted to make sure we talk about? I think in the context of say you know what's going on with Barbie and Oppenheimer and the writer's strike and everything, I guess her story I want to emphasize not just you know. It, it, it's multi-layered, right? It's a, it's a, a story of Southern California. It's a story of Hollywood, the sexism, racism, but also very importantly, ageism, uh, which is still kind of haunts Hollywood today. But it's also really a story of America, of course, uh, that America, if America like, you know, you know, falls in love with her looks and she's really strikingly good looking, that romance really also became a taboo because of her looks. And that's really one, you know, if there's any one line kind of story I want to tell, it is this. Yinta, thanks so much for speaking with me today. Uh, and thank you for this terrific book. I really enjoyed learning about Anime Wong and then uh, started Googling her videos and started watching some of the movies. So I, I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Kelly. When I sang this next song for the first time in Rome, imagine my embarrassment when my Italian went completely. Completely wrong. 
but the audience was most gracious and turned what I felt was failure into success. So much so, the manager stood in the wings every performance after that muttering, Make mistakes, make mistakes. <laughs> Mr. Valley tells me the song is very popular here, under the title of Tell Me That You Love Me Tonight. I will sing a combination of the Italian and British version. <laughs> la mia vita sei tu gli occhi tuoi belli brillano fiamme di sogno scintillano dimmi che illusione non è dimmi che sei tutta per me Love was around us, he came out and found us alone. Now he has left us, bereft us of all we had seen. Words that once mattered and flattered were not what they seemed. All we dreamed. Love's love where he's spoken, Sherry. Now my heart is broken. Faded the hours I spent with you Roaming the boulevard content with you Once our hearts were blended, Sherry Now our dream is ended, Sherry And like a broken melody Thanks for listening to Unsung History. Please subscribe to Unsung History on your favorite podcasting app. You can find the sources used for this episode in a full episode transcript at unsunghistorypodcast.com. To the best of our knowledge, all audio and images used by Unsung History are in the public domain or are used with permission. You can find us on Twitter or Instagram at unsung underscore underscore history or on Facebook at Unsung History Podcast. To contact us with questions, corrections, praise, or episode suggestions, please email kelly at unsunghistorypodcast.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review, and tell everyone you know. Bye!